Hello and welcome to the Culture Mirrors podcast. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're going to be battling through our various ailments and illnesses to bring you the podcast with some uh, reviews. We're going to have a, a bit of a chat first off, though, about birthdays. So it's come to our attentions that we are each having our respective birthdays. Um, I think this podcast actually straddles the two, um, which is not quite as as I meant to sound, but... Um, <laughs> You've already turned this dirty straight away. Well, it's got to be a new record, hasn't it? <laughs> Less than a minute Less in. Less than a minute in, yeah. Um, so it, it was my birthday a couple of weeks ago. It's um, Sean's birthday um, this coming weekend. What milestone did you reach? I, I Well, I was not necessarily going to give exact Oh, ages, sorry, are you, are you getting all... Getting all sort of like, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I'm greyer than you, so you are. <laughs> I've got you something are, to protect. But, um, <laughs> you like you've got gravitas, I don't. So yeah, well, um, silence says it all. <laughs> so, uh, but then I remembered that we're actually going to be discussing the years in which we were born. So yes. um, this is obviously not going to be an annual feature because there's only so much you can say about the past. Can I just say, what? is our birthday on? Is this podcast birthday coming up soon as well? Yeah, soon, end of the month. End of the month, okay. Yeah, I'm on it. I'm on it. Don't okay, worry. yeah, yeah, don't worry. I just wanted to. We're coming up to our twelve month because it's keeping with the theme. Yeah, fine. Uh, um, so um, one one thing we did discuss is that uh, the, the films that came out the years we were born. Um, one thing I do like to throw people as a, a bit of a curveball to see if they know it or not would generally be the music number one that, of when they were born. Um, do you know yours? Goodness me. 1987. I'm going to take a guess. Something like Whitney Houston or something like that. I don't know. No, you, you don't know is the answer to that question. Yeah, all right. Thank you. <laughs> I, it was a yes or no question. Well, well thanks for cu- cutting right to the heart. <laughs> okay. It was a yes or no. The answer is no. <laughs> well, well who's, who was yours then? Uh, I had... Uh, well, I, uh, do you not know? I had The One and Only by Chesney Hawks. It's not bad, actually. That is very bad. It's um, all right. It's very bad. But... <laughs> Keep in keeping with the theme of um, movie reviews and movies, um, we were discussing some of the films that came out the years we were born. Sean, give us a, a little smattering of the ones that you've got. So I had Good Morning Vietnam, I had Wall Street, I had Planes, Trains and Automobiles, and I had a Kubrick in the form of <coughs> Full Metal Jacket, which I would say, I, that's not one of my favourite Stanley Kubrick films, and I wouldn't say it's actually one of his best films, apart from the first 40 minutes, which is brilliant. Um, you're, you're wrong. It's basically like, an entire thing about Nietzsche, but yeah, go on. Which it could be about Nietzsche. It still doesn't make it good. It um, does, because it is. I don't think the war stuff's very good in it. I think the pre-war stuff is brilliant, the boot camp thing. So, you're so ugly, you could be a modern art masterpiece. So you see that? So you notice how I was looking at you when I said that? So, how tall are you? <laughs> how what? How tall are you? How tall? Oh, I see. Right. I'm uh, five foot nine. Five foot nine? I didn't realise they stacked you that high. <laughs> oh, my God. I've got you doing quotes. That never normally happens. Uh, yeah, I know. So, right, so that's that's, that's what me. happens when you evoke Kubrick. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only Kubrick can do it. All right, then. So so what were yours? Uh, in my year? Yeah. Well, I think you were forgetting your number one box office film of the year. I was steering around that. Um, all right, go on. Humiliate me. Three men and a baby. Well, actually, no, hang on. What's wrong with three men? And, if it was a sequel, three men and a little lady, that's rubbish. But Three Men and a Baby's fine. Yeah, okay. It's, it's fine. It is. By Leonard Nimoy. It, it, it's fine. But, yeah. Right, okay. There's there's the elephant in the corner here. You're smiling at me. Then we jump to 1991 and yeah, I've got right. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, I hate you. Then uh, followed up by 
Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Silence of the Lambs, the one of the three films to win the big five Oscars. So um, again, just just throw that one out there. Thank the you. other the other two years. That, that's a question for you. Um, it happened one night and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I said years. Nineteen. 19 no hang on 1935 and 1975 i'm guessing i know i know one one for the cookies nest was 1975 i think it happened one night it was 1935 i think it was slightly later was it so i'll, I'll just check this now so you fill while i check uh, okay um I, w- I also want to point out that um in in my year you also had the world conquering the last emperor uh, was released uh, directed by bernardo bertolucci which won loads and loads of oscars i think that got about 10 oscars I think was it. Um, I also, also had Fatal Attraction, so a trend was set in my year: the bunny boiling trend. Uh, maybe not exactly a good trend. Nineteen thirty-four. Damn. Oh well, I get, I get one, one or two. Oh, I was only a year out. Uh, well done. Yep. There we go. I think we've babbled enough on this. <laughs> we've celebrated birthdays enough. Now let's move on. Who won? I think I won. Okay. Just because. <laughs> let's be honest. Mm. <laughs> just because you because yeah. you've got grey hair <laughs> and you're and you're wiser I am like the Gandalf of this podcast what am I Samwise <sighs> you're Pippin <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> right so uh, moving swiftly on to some of the uh, reviews um, there is the again talking about elephants in rooms um, we're not going to quite come to uh, Batman's and Superman is Dawn of Justice yet because that will be a conversation that, that's the mammoth in the room that is not the elephant to say the least but speaking yeah. again of elephants there is a new Disney film out Sean what's it called? it's called Zootropolis and it's absolutely wonderful uh, so yeah the new movie from the makers of uh, Frozen and Big Hero 6 and Wreck-It Ralph so it's sort of the Walt Disney CGI strand that they've got going at the moment which is churning out all these hits this is almost certainly one of the best ones they've done so you have um, so Jennifer Goodwin voices Judy Hopps who immediately beca- has become one of my favourite um, Disney characters of all time why are you frowning? Who's Jennifer Goodwin? Jennifer Goodwin is from a, a, a TV series apparently called Once Upon a Time, which I've not watched, but she plays Snow White in it. Once Upon a Time is basically where you uh, they they take traditional fairy stories, fairy tale stories, and put them with a twist. So I can understand why Disney would pay attention to something like that. Uh, okay, fair enough. She was also uh, Johnny Cash's first wife in Walk the Line, I believe, opposite Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, not the real Johnny Cash. No, not the real Johnny Cash. No, um, I think she had a small role in that. But yeah, so um, from a young age, Judy Hopps is Bunny Rabbit. She's wanted to become a police officer. She's told by everybody, including her parents, "No, look, you're destined to become a." A carrot, um, a carrot grower. You know, you're you're a rabbit. You can't adapt to the you know the rough and tumble life of the police force. She says, no, no, no. I want to do it. Um, so she, um, as she gets older, she moves. Um, she moves up the rank. She she is, uh, graduates at the top of her police academy class, um, and then she moves to the bright lights of the eponymous city Zootropolis, which is a dazzling city populated entirely by mammals. All sorts of mammals under the sun, all living. In harmony, apparently, alongside one another, predators and prey, alongside one another. Does Doomsday show up? Does Doomsday show up? Mm. What Fantastic Four? No. Oh no, no, sorry. No, what? No, Batman v Superman. No, no, he doesn't. Why would he turn up? That's generally what happens when people are living in perfect harmony. Well, isn't not, it? well they're animals, they're oh. not people. Well, Doomsday's a thing. Did you not hear me while I said animals living together? Sorry. <laughs> can I? Can I continue? Yeah. Carry on. Thanks. Um, and so she, um, 
she arrives in the big city hoping to do some good, hoping to, you know, make her mark on her job. And she's told very, very swiftly by her superior officer, Chief Bogo, voiced by Idris Elba, who's a water buffalo. No, you're going to be put on parking duty because you're you're a bunny rabbit. You know, no one's going to take you seriously. You're no you're no form of physical threat. Um, and then but then she she uncovers a um, well, she hears about a conspiracy involving a uh, missing otter. And she thinks this is my chance to make a name for myself as a detective. So she burrows into it um, with the help of a Foxconn artist called Nick Wilde, voiced by Jason Bateman. Um, she has to enlist this because he knows all the sort of ins and outs of what goes on in the city. He knows all the all the angles, all the leads. So she coerces him into uh, helping her. And gradually she... Um, she uncovers this sh- surprising and shocking conspiracy which plays right into the heart of the, the fabric of the city itself and about how predators and prey are living alongside one another and what happens when that balance is disturbed. Um, and I thought it was... It's, yeah, sorry, you're... Yes, go on. No, you finish. No, 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 no go on. I was just going to ask, why would he not eat her? Well, this is this is the whole thing, and 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 in fact, their their relationship, Judy and Nick's relationship, um, Fox Bunny Rabbit, obviously the quintessential rivalry antagonism that's run throughout storytelling and films. Um, one of the things that Judy was told as a young age is that be careful of foxes because foxes are not to be trusted. So she therefore has to overcome her own prejudices and learn how to trust him because he he looks down on her. He's very derisive towards her. Um, and it's about the friendship that builds between them steadily. But it's all about what um, what sort of fabric is society built on, you know, it, and, it, and it, it reflects our own modern day lives. You know, are the people, the people that we as humans living alongside, you know, how do we know that we can get on with them? How do we know that we can trust them? What can we do to make the world a better place? And to ensure that there is all this compassion and unity and so on, and it's a Disney film with real claws. Actually, it, it's it's beautifully animated, as you'd expect. It's visually gorgeous. The bit where she comes into Zootropolis on the train is probably one of Disney's best bits of CGI or any animation that I've ever seen. You get all the um, you see all the various districts like Tundra Town and the Little Sahara, and all of these various neighbourhoods have obviously got all of these different animals coexisting alongside one another but it's actually got it seems weird to say it's actually got real satirical depth to it and it's about prejudice and racism and xenophobia um and given what's given what's going on in current affairs in the world at the moment it couldn't be more more relevant i don't obviously this this movie has been years in development so it's probably more a case of lucky timing than anything else but it plays right into the heart of what people are talking about at the moment. I think these issues have been prevalent for the last decade or so. I mean, yeah. e- even longer, you know. Yeah. It's, it's something that's been a, a well-trodden path and it sounds like a completely different take on that. Well, it is. I mean, you, you, to use um, a family-friendly exterior to explore what are very, very potent and very difficult, um, you know, topical subject matter and to introduce it to family audiences is a really really impressive achievement and in the manner of all great disney films it doesn't club you over the head with it it presents all this stuff to you um but you know younger audiences can obviously read into it what they will um you know it is there but obviously adult audiences will likely take more away from that so it does that like we were saying about um inside out it does the cross-generational thing it hits all the bases all the age groups are catered for in a really really sophisticated funny smart moving way I, I thought it was great I really liked it 
And the name of it again? Zootropolis, or Zootopia as it's known in the USA. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Exactly why is it being renamed well, and rebranded? And... A- apparently, the reason is because there is, there's a, I think there's a theme park somewhere in Europe that owns the, the, the rights to the name Zootopia, and apparently they weren't allowed to release the film under that name. I think that's the reason why they had to call, re, rename it Zootropolis. Could the clout of Disney not do something? Well, that's what I thought, but apparently that's the way it is. So, Fair enough. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And the name of it correctly so people can go and see it? Zootopia-tropolis. Brilliant, that's not confused anyone. So <laughs> picking up on the theme of... Um, incorporating different aspects into society and different types of people into society. Um, I think the the time has come to unveil Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Did you hear that? What was that? That was was the sort of sound that my head made against the wall after I came out of watching this film. Okay, so... (laughs) Let's let's approach this from a slightly pragmatic way. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So, when you look at what we've got already, we, when we at the start of the film we have Man of Steel, Man of Steel, which was three quarters of a very very good film. You can't really dispute that. You can make I'd, a face. I'd say a third, a third of a good film. The bits with Kevin Costner were very good. The rest of it, pff. no. But okay, um, <laughs> I just like Field of Dreams. You know, he he looked like he was in Field of Dreams, and that just made it better. Well, presumably, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> So when when you're looking at that film, then we, we're picking up pretty much as as that ended with the, the massive fight, which destroyed all the buildings, which everyone seemed to get really really annoyed about. And we then have this shot from a different angle showing Ben Affleck as Bruce Wayne, um, which we see more of him as throughout the film develops. Uh, and this effectively gives him a stance on Superman, which is distinctly anti-Superman, and. The character of Bruce Wayne is very different to any character of Bruce Wayne I've ever read or seen in the 66 TV show, in the animated series, in any of the films, in any of the animated cartoons, and in any of the incarnations throughout the the history of the character. It's very, very different. So you mean he doesn't run away from a group of nuns carrying a bomb? He doesn't do that. Oh, for shame. One thing that he does do, though, is he, he actually explicitly says the line that if there's a 1% chance, then it it's too much. So basically, if Superman is going to turn on somebody, it, there's, or there's a 1% chance Superman can turn on humanity, and that's a chance he can't quite take. And that's <laughs> very scary in terms of a, a potential, an idea of, of, or an ideology. Um it's something that would be more aligned to the current political climate within America, uh, the whole mentality of build a wall around things. That is exactly what that portrays as a character, which is not what Bruce Wayne is and not what Batman is. So they're completely changing this character, which is fine. I mean, if you don't change anything, how do you get anything to progress? I completely understand. Um, So that in itself is relatively valid. If you want to make your Batman do that, then make your Batman do that. Um, If you want to make your Superman slightly miserable, make your Superman slightly miserable. One thing you could do, though, is turn the brightness up on the screen. Well, so so this is Bruce Wayne's position. So what's Superman's position? What's happening in the rest of the the rest of the storyline? So, well, let's take this one thread at a time, because the the summary of, of, of any review would basically be the first 90 minutes is incomprehensible and then the last half is when it begins to take shape. Um, So in the first 
90 minutes. They're laying all these different plot threads down for future films or for this. There's, there's about four or five different dream sequences, um, which, as far as I'm concerned, from a writing point of view, they just bring everything to a screeching halt, an absolute standstill. So in terms of what else is going on... Um, well, Clark Kent is now working at the Daily Planet on a regular basis. It seems that Lois Lane's the only person that can figure out that they're one and the same. Henry Cavill and, and Amy Adams, we should say. Yeah. yeah. And she's, what, a four-time Oscar nominee, five-time Oscar nominee, something ridiculous. And playing a Pulitzer Prize winner, as yeah. they seem keen to reinforce to us. We'll get to her. Um, <laughs> so, overall... Well, so that's one plot thread. Another plot thread is that... Um, Bruce Wayne is trying to uncover what exactly Lex Luthor knows. There's this random bad guy that's come up from nowhere, which happens. You kind of get that. Um, he's introduced a, a scientist that's kind of above everyone in both intellect and mentality. And he's played by Jesse Eisenberg in a very similar way to uh, the way he played Mark Zuckerberg uh, in The Social Network, which, fine, again, if you want to go that way, go that way. It's not a problem. Um, there's just there's so much stuff that happens like superman goes to nairomi which it was that weird kind of did they spell it wrong deliberately but it, he goes to nairomi to save um amy adams and lois lane so he he and that happens and the reason for and then that sets her off on something about a bullet that doesn't really go anywhere and then you have something about Congress, and then you've got something with a guy that's really annoyed about what happened in Metropolis. There's these little bits that happen all over the place. But and the whole the whole Nairobi thing, it's almost like someone said, you know what, calling it Nairobi might make it a bit controversial. Let's change one one letter in it, yeah. and then people won't guess what's going on. It's, it's just ridiculous. It's mental. <laughs> if you're going to come up with somewhere different, come up with somewhere different. But yeah. anyway, so... Um, so... Hmm... <sighs> That's basically the plot as... Uh, or plots. <laughs> plots. Uh, we haven't touched on Wonder Woman yet. Um, I think from what we've both suggested thus far, you, you can probably tell that Sean is completely down. I'm slightly more favourable. I'm on a... I'm, on, I'm teetering on the edge of a three-star review. Yeah, I'm... You're not. <laughs> one, one and three quarters to two. Um... It's not. It's not a completely lost cause. Um, I think that Ben Affleck as Batman. I, I think we should say we're coming at this from interestingly different perspectives. I'm not a comic book fan. I don't have the knowledge of the comics that you do. I think you're coming at it from that point of view, and therefore your interpretation of Bruce Wayne. You've interpreted that as a as a, crit- as a negative criticism the way that they've worked on Bruce Wayne and Batman in this. Well, um, yeah. For and Sean's just- benefit, I'm laying out both my wallet and my telephone case, yeah. um, which portray different <laughs> eras of the bat I so mean, we, we should say on the wallet we have the picture of the joker laughing it's from batman 251 the cover well there you go mate drawn, drawn, by, point. drawn yeah. by neil adams yeah. and on the back of the phone you have the batman logo that yeah. symbol um and there's there's really not an incarnation of batman that i've not at least tried mm. you know I've, i do try and especially within film and tv I, I will sit and watch them so there is that that knowledge and love of that particular character so to see what they've done with him in this incarnation, 
I think you're about to build and praise Ben Affleck. Well, I, I am I am about to praise Ben Affleck. It, it, what's wrong with the film is not his fault, okay? Because he is in it as an actor. And obviously, as an actor, an actor can only work with what they're given unless they're involved in a film in some sort of production or directorial role and they've got more control over it. But that didn't happen with Ben Affleck in this, although apparently he has already written his own solo Batman movie, which I'm very intrigued by because he's a terrific director. I and mean, he's done Argo, Gone Baby, Gone the Tank. But... Yeah, the, the, you, you've you've sort of seen the interpretation of, of Batman as a problem. I I didn't see that as a problem. I saw that was, as interesting, but that's because I'm coming at it from the perspective of not necessarily knowing a lot about the comics. I thought, right, okay, the interpretation of Bruce Wayne as as a more savage, you know, character branding enemies, shooting them. A lot of people have taken against that. The that branding was a problem. Yeah, that to me. I was interested in that. The problem is that the direction and the writing is so poor that there there is no there's no psychological decent psychological motivation behind what he's doing. He's doing stuff, but it's not there's no real reason why he's doing it. Same for all the characters in the movie. I'm think you can't just you can't just have a character look at something and go, "Right, there are I'm defined by what I've just seen there. You can't just have a character having one conversation, in this case with Alfred, played by Jeremy Irons, who's really badly utilised, saying, you know, there's a 1% chance he might wipe something, must do it. You can't just boil things down to that and go, right, there you go, that's the whole definition of the character. But that's what Zack Snyder, as a director, does. And this is my real problem with it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 have, I have more fundamental problems with the filmmaker himself, because um, I think Zack Snyder is a really bad storyteller with the exception of his dawn of the dead remake which i really like i Uh, think what history has proven is that Zack snyder is okay with other people's material mm. dawn of the dead clear lineage to what he needs to do 300 it's frank miller's book you are following frank miller's book animal watchman you, you follow that book but then when he's left on his own you end up with like sucker punch yeah, I, I, I'm astonished that that the Warner executives... Do, I mean, all right, Watchmen is beloved by, by a lot of people, not by me. I thought it was boring. I thought 300 was just, just really naff as well, but I just... 300 was deliberately naff. Three, that's the point of 300. I don't know if it was deliberately naff, actually. I mean, I think... I, I think Zack Snyder lacks a, a vital sense of irony in in his films. I think if you look at a good director, a good director will always bring a degree of self awareness. And like you look at what Christopher Nolan did with the bat with his Batman movies, and I think individually those movies are flawed. I think The Dark Knight is a masterpiece. I've got problems with the first and third ones, but what he did was he made Batman relevant for people who don't care about Batman, which is a really really impressive achievement when mm-hmm. you consider that the franchise had died with Batman and Robin. Zack Snyder doesn't do that. Zack Snyder just comes in with his, you know, I have to say ugly, oversaturated visual panache and just basically leafs through the comics that he's looking at. He's got, right, there you go. There's a comic panel. Let's put it on the screen. It's like, well, hang on. Are we actually going to actually think about what the emotional ramifications of that are? Are you actually going to think about what that means logically in terms of a narrative? No, it's all right. It's just spectacle. It's all visuals. And after two and a half hours of having my eyeballs burned out of my head and my brain being mashed repeatedly as a result of Batman v Superman, it just reaffirmed what I think of him as story. He's, a, he's an abysmal storyteller and that he is reliant on visual spectacle, but I think the visual spectacle, as his films have gone on, has become increasingly more ugly. And I actually don't like the way his films look. I don't like the overproduced look of it. I don't like the incessant reliant on noisy special effects that, you know, simply throwing loads of spectacle at an audience isn't enough. I know... 
not anymore at least no spectacle has to have something behind it spectacle has to be stitched together with you know not just a reverence for the character i think the frustrating thing is about Zack snyder he obviously cares about this material but, but I don't think he can translate it. I know that's where you disagree with me. I think that there is an enthusiasm there, but it's it's kind of a, a really annoying 14-year-old boy with a $250 million budget enthusiasm. I think if there was an enthusiasm there, there would ultimately be a better film. Mm. Because the, the problem for me with the film is that there are a lot of characters that are very underserved. He oh, clearly yeah. like He clearly doesn't really care about Alfred, as an example, whereas Alfred's an integral part of Batman and Bruce Wayne and the, the dynamic that they have together is wonderful and it can, it's been seen on screen with Christian Bale and Michael Caine which that's not a cue by the way so um <laughs> right, no. you don't want me to talk like that? No the size of a tangerine, no <laughs> <laughs> what on bloody earth was that? no I'm not doing it <laughs> bit loud but there we go, right <laughs> so no, the, the thing is that you, you can have some greatness with those those two characters and the, He's just not interested in that. It's, it's uh, oh, I will say a line to Alfred because a line is necessary for this story. And that is kind of it. Well, that well, that's what I mean. I mean, I think that, he, I think that he has a love of the material, but the, the, the dramatic instincts just aren't there. It's like, it's almost like he needs a better, well, not need a better editor, he's, <laughs> he needs a better director. Um, I just think that he has no idea how to articulate anything beyond costumes and pants and lycra and abs and strobe lighting and thunderstorms and i just think oh for heaven's sake it's just for me the film worked on a slightly better level mm. so we've been quite down at this far so you know I'm, we're going to come to the the misuse of lois lane we're going to come to the absolute sort of real misuse of dream sequences in a second but as far as good things go for the film, the the when it really kicks into gear, when it really, really becomes streamlined and about something, even if it's just about its its surface story, it's not necessarily about like we were saying with Zootropolis about different things in real life. And all. if you're looking at it from a, a story perspective, it does click into gear at the point when Lex Luthor becomes the puppet master. Because that's what Lex Luthor is. That's what that character is. He is the puppet master and he will get people to do what he wants and he will plan everything. And then eventually he he kind of needs to be foiled. That's kind of the point. So it's just before the first fight, that or the, the, the fight, the Batman-Superman fight, that things really click into gear and you go, right, from a story perspective, this completely makes sense now. Um they don't quite earn the smashy smashy bang that they do. Um, there are also lines of dialogue that are very much, why have you brought us here? There's no people here. And it's just, to me, that's an understatement. Well, Some of the worst dialogue I've ever heard in a blockbuster, I'd say. Yeah. And it's so, th- there are moments of that, but it, it, at that point, it doesn't really matter because the story itself makes sense. You forgive poor dialogue if the story makes sense. Look at Star Wars. The story makes sense. The dialogue's awful in the first Star Wars. The key difference is in Star Wars, you care or I care what's going on. In this, I didn't care whatsoever. I was not emotionally invested That's in it. I mean, the, yeah. the story makes sense, so yeah. you, you forgive poor dialogue. Whereas when it comes to down to it, when the story is really clicking into gear and, and, and actually doing something in um, in Batman Superman, then it's fine. It's, it's almost forgivable. Almost. But um, I think that when you're looking at the, the film as a whole, you can't 
break it into those two bits and you have to look at the, the the dire dream sequences and the fact that how many times do we need to see these poor Waynes murdered? I uh, mean, have, have we not seen the pearls fall enough and Joe and, Chill doing his whole... Well, the whole thing, opening sequence with the young Bruce Wayne falling down the hole and the bats coming out. So like, you just lifted that directly from Batman Begins. You lifted ridiculous. it from Batman Begins yeah. and then you run it through a really shit filter. Yeah. To go, you know what? Let's have him levitate. Yeah. And, and and that weirdly enough, that image sums up what I think of Zack Snyder as a as a dramatist and as a storyteller. I think at that point, if you were if we were in the same screen, we would have been on a complete level playing field. I just thought you having a laugh. Yeah, with, with the exception being that um, I think you're a bit more optimistic about him than me. And obviously, you started off at that negative point, and you it seems like you got relatively more optimistic as the film went on. Whereas I just ended up being deadened and crushed and disappointed, and just like I can't wait for this to be over. And I don't want to say that about a blockbuster. It's got Batman, and Superman in it for Christ's sake. Mm. It should be one of the best big budget spectacles of all time, and it isn't. Uh, I don't want. I can come out of a blockbuster thinking many things. A blockbuster obviously doesn't have to be per- perfect. No film has to be perfect. I'll accept all sorts of flaws, but a blockbuster being boring is insurmountable. That's unacceptable. Yeah, um, I, I will agree with you on that. And that that was my fundamental problem here. I thought um, that actually, funnily enough, um, an old flatmate of mine said in response to Man of Steel, which I also didn't like. Um, although uh, bits of Man of Steel were a lot better than this, um, no, Kevin Costner bits, namely, uh, he he said that Man of Steel is a film. He used a brilliant word. He said that it it was a reactive film. It was only interested in responding to bits, to individual set pieces as and when they happened. But the set pieces never ever cohered into anything. There was no wider unity in the film. And I thought that was a brilliant word. Because it all is, it's almost like Zack Snyder's attention only lasts for however long he has to set up these set pieces for. Then he gets bored and he goes off and does something else. So, it's... In a similar vein, I read something online about um, the the way that uh, that someone described Zack Snyder as uh, a a guy that seems to have only ever read one comic book, and that's Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. And then he only read one part of that comic book, which was Batman and Superman fighting, which happens in the fourth book. Bearing in mind, there's three books before that, setting up exactly why they're fighting and the reason for that, and the reasons that they do, they stop, don't they stop, whatever in the book. But it it was out in 1986. If you haven't read it by now, then... Mm. But um, there's... The, the, the central ideas of... of why they're fighting and why they stop fighting. Again, you can forgive. Not in this film, though. You, they could be. They could have been forgiven, but they, they, the storytelling is just so poor. You can't forgive it. They've not earned that. No, you don't earn that level of trust from the audience. And I think in the marketplace where you've got Marvel dominating the way that they have creating, admittedly, you can't really shy away from the fact that Age of Ultron was. A shadow in comparison to the mm. the Avengers, but when they're creating things like the Avengers, and you've got Batman v Superman, the two. If you're going to say to anybody, name two superheroes, you're going to have Batman and Superman thrown back at you, even in the days now of Marvel dominating the film industry. Well, yeah, of course, because because they're 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 possibly the two most iconic superheroes of all time, aren't they? They are easily. And to take those two huge brand names. And put this next to it, yeah. which when you associate 
when you associate um, Superman, the the first word that people come to is colourful, light, patriotic. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> when you're making your Superman this miserable, then what are you going to do with your Batman? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, and I just think that I mean, say what you will about Marvel as a stable, at least their films show a degree of self awareness. At least their films are fun. Um, and at least they're, they're, they're at least you know not all the Marvel films are great like you said Avengers Age of Ultron was a step below the first one at least it hung together as a piece of storytelling just about you know well, that uh, was Joss Whedon's doing yeah, yeah. and Joss Whedon although he might have flaws as a filmmaker knows how to put dialogue and story and character together um, he might not do it in a way you know he might not do it with extraordinary visual pizzazz but he knows how to do it Zack Snyder just yeah, I, 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 you know, Zack Snyder almost embodies everything that Joss Whedon doesn't. Yeah, and vice versa. And I, w- I would say that both Zack Snyder and Batman v Superman embody everything that's wrong with modern day blockbusters. But there are loads of really brilliant modern day blockbusters. So I, I don't think that's fair. I think what Marvel do is great. I think last year you had something like um, Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation, which was terrific fun. That was fantastic. Yeah, I rewatched that again recently. Yeah, and that that's the sort of standard that blockbuster movies should aspire towards, whether they're comic book movies or not. You know, well told, richly exciting. You know, tense, well acted movies and I just think that I, I do feel sorry for the actors involved in Batman v Superman actually because I think that Ben Affleck tries his best Henry Cavill is completely betrayed by like you said by the complete corruption of Superman as a character um, yeah and the thing is he he is he, he, if you're going to cast somebody to be in that Christopher Reeve mould I know that this is well trodden ground but if you're going to have somebody do that then you've got your perfect guy he can do that he he was in the Man from Uncle, being that, lighthearted, doing it with a, with a cocked eyebrow and 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 a sense of fun. Yeah, he can do that. But yeah. then when you give him the material that he's had, he just got to look slightly mopey and have his big jaw jutted out. And yeah, um, and it's almost without really going into spoiler territory. It's kind of the worst insult you can give it is that you kind of forget that a nuclear bomb goes off at some point. <laughs> If you're looking yeah. at looking back at your blockbuster going, oh yeah, a nuclear bomb went off. Forgot about that. To be honest, I'd forgotten about that. Precisely. Yeah. Um, loads of stuff happened in it. I couldn't remember everything. And when um, when I mentioned Doomsday earlier, you looked at me blankly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, and, and it just looks like the poop monster from Dogma, just done with really bad CGI effects. And I just think that you know, it's just it's just lame, just really lame. I, and I was just like, right, enough of the roaring and the screeching and the blowing up and everything. And then Wonder Woman turns up, as seen in the in the trailer. Obviously, that's, that's not a... Oh, all of this is in the trailer, except yeah, yeah. the nuke bit, but yeah. um, it's been out for a couple of weeks now. If you're not going to go, you're not going. <laughs> yeah, and I just think Wonder Woman does threaten to bring a spark of life into it. And I think Gal Gadot out of the costume when she's doing the flirtatious thing with Lois Lane as Diana Prince. I think, oh, okay, there's a seed of a really interesting character in there. It's like a society woman who's got this other alter ego as a superhero. I think, oh, okay, you know, there's potential there. And I like the scenes with her and Ben Affleck, but they're very, very few and far between in a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Yeah, and obviously there's a Wonder Woman film coming out not being directed by Zack Snyder. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot of talk now, isn't there, about, you know, that this this film has made, I believe, about $600 million already, and it's it's really dropping very, very fast out of the box office charts because it's not getting the repeat viewings either from fans or from non-fans. And, you know, where is this leaving the DC movie universe? It's- well, <laughs> Justice League is going in production into production shortly, 
with that will be Zack Snyder's next film. Um, so they've given him their version of the Avengers to deal with. So um, that will will be interesting, especially after you've had a couple of fingers and a couple of pies. You know, when when you look at the fact we've got uh, Suicide Squad coming up later on this year with directed by David Ayer, currently undergoing reshoots to change its tone. Apparently, mm, yeah, I might have been blown out of proportion, but I'd probably. You know, I'd mm. imagine most blockbusters at that sort of level do go through reshoots. Yeah. They just don't necessarily get as widely reported as mm. as the Suicide Squad ones. But um, I think when you look at that, as far as I would be concerned, that would be the start of the DCU. Um, so in terms of where this leaves the whole universe, who knows? It's just a case of will they really continue to back Zack Snyder? That's the, the million-dollar question. Yeah. Uh. I, I really hope not because, um, like I said, you know, whatever else he's done, he made Sucker Punch, which is one of the most foolish and fatuous movies that I've ever made. Um, you know, he can make as many good films as he wants. He will always make Sucker Punch. He's always got that, that latent idiocy lurking on his on his CV. Um, that should be enough to stop him from doing any of these sorts of movies again in future, frankly. Maybe a bit harsh. Yeah, but, well, Spielberg did 1941. Yeah, but Spielberg had made Jaws and Close Encounters before that. Very true. <laughs> I will not try and stand up for Zack Snyder and compare him with Spielberg. No, no, don't. <laughs> I think we should move away from Batman v Superman, don't you yeah. think? I mean, we could spend a long old time on this. I, I could literally sit here for about an hour or so, picking a few holes and fighting a few corners, but ultimately, um, it was okay, as far as I was. It was okay. Um, it didn't really pass but it was okay it, I, you know. I thought it was very disappointing moving on to slightly brighter pastures Sean tell us about Victoria yeah so good good we're coming out of the shadows now we are ascending into the sky and there is sunshine ah <sighs> the right. image you associate with Superman yeah exactly yeah there we go until S- oh wait <laughs> yeah um this is a, a, a really um terrific um Jennifer. Now, I want to say that I've not said that on. I'm not. I'm not saying Victoria is terrific and Batman v Superman is is rubbish. Just because you know I'm down on blockbusters and I'm up on you know indie world cinema releases. That is most certainly not the case at all. I want to stress that. Okay, there are good blockbusters and bad blockbusters. Yeah, I completely agree yeah. with you. And there are good foreign language films and bad foreign language films. Yeah, and um, this is one of the good ones. Okay. No, I just want to make that clear because because of that transition, okay? Yeah, Sean likes art house stuff and doesn't like blockbusters. Take that away and remember that. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the yeah. Thanks for the thumbs up. <laughs> um, I got yeah, you back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is a really interesting um, German film directed by Sebastian Schipper. You might have heard about this. All done in one take, which is really quite astonishing when you consider this is not an eighty minute film. It's not a ninety minute film. It's actually two hours and ten minutes long. All done in one unbroken take with no edits in it, no hidden camera movements. This is this is a very, very widely reported area of cinema. If you think of um, what Alfred Hitchcock did with Rope, but Rope had about, I think it was three ca- very carefully and cleverly hidden edit points in it. I think there's one moment where James Stewart throws a table over and the camera moves in towards the table and then in the blackout he cuts away. Uh, you've also got something like... Um, the very showy offy nature of Birdman, which was actually several long individual takes all edited together. Um, I suppose the the thing that it's closest to. Did you ever see there was a Russian film? There was a Russian film called Russian Ark that came out in the early two thousands. No, you didn't see that. No, no, I did not. Dramatically lean into the microphone. Was there. was it a blockbuster that I 
didn't want. Yeah, there's a Zack Snyder turned up and someone wore loads of spandex and yeah, lots lots of really really boring stuff. Were, were there parademons? Were there what? Parademons. Um, para- no, there weren't. No. Okay, they were. So is that another thing that I didn't remember from Batman soon anyway I'll tell you later yeah it's it was one I watched it at university and basically this this um it's it, basically a guided tour behind the scenes of um I believe it was a Russian opera house and it was all done over 90 minutes in one take really quite extraordinary with all people coming in and out of the frame and all sorts of stuff going on this probably owes more to that um but if anything this is more impressive because the nature of the storytelling makes it more impressive so you have a uh, uh, Leia Costa who is a Spanish girl living in uh, Berlin at the start of the movie um where she is in a club and um she meets up with this group of seemingly friendly um guys one of whom is played by Frederick Lau who's terrific in this um they all seem very very friendly she uh, finds herself attracted to him um, it's early morning and she is working in a, um, a coffee shop, a barista's. Um, and then gradually she finds out more and more stuff about them and she finds out they are into some, they are basically in some bad shit with some criminals. Um, and I don't really want to say anything else about what happens, but she great basically gets suckered into this this world that they find themselves in. These aren't these aren't necessarily bad guys. They've just got involved with bad people. And the movie unfolds um, in real time across the course of two hours because it was filmed in real time and basically explores how this young woman's life basically goes absolutely upside down. It goes from this position of relative normality, you know, young girl, Spanish, living in Berlin, meets a group of men with whom she gets on. Um, and then it completely, completely turns around on her and everything gets really, really anguished and horrifying and out of control. Um and it's one of those films where I, I had to look up afterwards how they'd actually done it. Um, and true enough, what they did was, I think it was an evening in April 2014, it was Sebastian Schipper and his cinematographer and the rest of the crew went out in the early morning in Berlin and did the whole film. They had to do three attempts at it, apparently. The first and third attempt didn't work, but the second one did, and that's the cut that they ended up using, the edit they ended up using. Um, and, and it's really it's it's really technically astonishing um but that really only sank in after I'd watched it. When I was watching it, I wasn't really focusing on that. I was focusing on the story and on the characters. And I think that's the biggest compliment that I can pay it, that I wasn't dazzled by the technical virtuosity of it. I mean, I think that's probably the accusation that I could level at something like Birdman, where it, it was all really, there, there were really impressive things about Birdman. The performances were really impressive, but it was all style, let's be honest. It's the, pretty much the same as with The Revenant. Yes. There are certain scenes in there which are scenes which look like they're one take, but they're obviously to people that can spot them, they're clearly not. And they are very showy pieces. They're very, look at me, look how showy this piece is. And whereas I think what Victoria does is Victoria is actually invested in in the central character she's called victoria hence the title um and i think that it, it is a character study and a lot of people you, you'd like this actually a lot of the um the first the first 30 to 45 minutes in which she's just chatting with these with these guys as you know they, there's one moment where um they take her into an off license and the owner is asleep and they basically you know they they pinch some beer off the shelf, so they do. They're basically freewheeling, free spirited guys, and a lot of people. Why would I like that? Well, I'm gonna. I'm getting to that. All oh, right, okay. I thought you were. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, not that bit. You'll support the nicking of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's this you've given me here? You've nicked that thing. Um, it, it, it's drawn a lot of comparison to the cinema of Richard Linklater. That's what I was getting at, and I know that you're a big Linklater fan. Yes. 
Um, and indeed, his new film, Everybody Wants Some, is coming out, isn't it? And it's meant to be brilliant anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got this slightly aimless, meandering sense of, you know, two people really falling in love with each other through the first part of the movie. And I think a lot of reviewers have under underestimated how important this bit is because there are conversations in this opening part of the film that really establish why Victoria and the rest of the characters behave like they do later on. It lays the groundwork um there's one moment where she says um she's she reveals herself to be something of a piano prodigy um there's there's a piano in the coffee shop where she works and she takes this guy in and she unveils this extraordinary skill at playing the piano and he says well, why don't you show it off and she says well I, I was in this conservatory in spain and it was a horrible atmosphere and basically I, this was drilled into me from when I was a child and she basically she says I don't feel like I had a childhood and therefore we think oh okay so does this does this inform her actions later on you know that sense of you know not re- quite realizing what life is and what she's getting into so that is all really really important and consequently when when stuff gets really bad and it does a lot of a lot of people might be tempted to read into it as you know the film getting somewhat unrealistic I didn't think it was unrealistic I thought that you know enough enough groundwork had been built up with the acting with the performance with the writing that I actually did care and I did crucially I did believe in what was happening Um, and I think that's a testament to to Sebastian Schipper as a a, a director and as a dramatist uh, that um, as a storyteller that I didn't notice the illusion while it was happening I did I was actually genuinely intrigued and genuinely gripped and I you know I was inching further and further towards the edge of my seat as the film was going on I didn't want things to get worse for this central character but of course they do um and I thought I thought it was it was it was really really impressive and you know when the suspense cranks up later on and the sequences become all the more complicated as as stuff starts to happen that's really bad that apparently there's one moment where um well there is one moment where um Victoria is in a I won't spoil the context of the scene she's in a car the other guys are in the car with her and things have got very, very out of control. Um, and she drives the car somewhere and they all start yelling at her. They all start saying, no, 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 don't go that way. Don't go that way. Go go right, go right. And apparently, um, Leia Costa, the actress, actually did go the wrong way down the road and she almost came off the set and revealed the crew around the edge of the car. And you can imagine how that bad that would have been. Apparently, Sebastian Shipper, the director, was actually yelling at her from the back seat, like, quickly turn off, don't, don't, don't break the illusion of the one take thing so there's all all this sort of stuff going up but the crucial thing about the film is that you don't notice that or i didn't notice it while it while it was going on and the name of the film again victoria and is it worth going to see it is worth going to see yeah more than batman v superman i think you might have hidden that (laughs) really yeah possibly so there's one final review that uh, we're going to look at this week um it is called welcome to me so sean tell us about that yeah um so, well, the, actually, another reason why you're like this, it's directed by Shira Piven. Do you know who that is? Uh, I guess someone related to Jeremy Piven. His older sister. Okay. And Jeremy Piven, of course, was in your favourite film of all time, Entourage, the movie. I, I wouldn't go that far, but okay. You would really, wouldn't you? No. <laughs> really? Of course not. But you defended it last year. I st- would still defend it. I wouldn't call it my favourite film of all time. Anyway, I regret bringing that up. Um, yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't go there, really. Well, no, you shouldn't, because it was an alright film. Yeah, whatever. For fans of the show, it was an alright film. Whatevs. Um, so, yeah, directed by Shira Piven, written by Elliot Lawrence. Very, very weird um, off-the-wall movie. Um, sort of an amalgamation of um, you know a study of mental illness with a satire about um, the nature of, of television. So Kristen Wiig, who adds another 
notched her increasingly impressive string of dramatic roles. Kristen Wiig's been been doing some really, really interesting films over the last couple of years that are outside of that. I like her as a comic a- actress anyway. But Did you see her in the Skeleton Twins? No, I didn't, and I heard she was really... It was Bill Hader, wasn't oh, it? Yeah, two very, very good central performances. Okay, I'll need to catch up with that. She was in Diary of a Teenage Girl last year, um, in which she played the um, the mother of the title character played by Belle Powley. She was brilliant in that. Um, she was also in The Martian, mm-hmm. and she was really good in The Martian. And this sort of straddles that serio-comic divide. I think there are comic elements elements in this performance, but it's much more towards the, the, the blackly comic dramatic register. So she is um, a woman called Alice who has um, a, a personality disorder, I think borderline personality disorder, I think it's, it's called. Um, she lives in uh, an apartment. We see this apartment at the start of the of the um, film, and it transpires that she's not turned her TV off for eleven years, and that she's gradually fed herself on this just this this garbage diet of just game shows and just bad bad television. Um, Sounds like the sort of TV you'd watch. Thank you. Yeah, such as eggheads, maybe. <laughs> what's, uh, what's wrong with eggheads? No, we're not. We're not going anywhere near that. Okay, don't insult eggheads. Although we, I thought you were going to say pointless, actually. I would have got really angry if you'd insulted pointless. No, I applied to go on pointless. Did you? <laughs> there you go. Um, so, um, so, yeah, and then, so she has, it, she has all, it, it's almost like it does, the, it does the standard thing of lining up, you know, she does all these quirky things, therefore, you know what, she's not in, she's not entirely there as a person. She, she, she sleeps in a sleeping bag on her bed. She doesn't seem to be able to address anybody without pulling out a piece of paper with like, I've, I've done a pre-prepared speech. This is a running thing throughout the film. You think, right, okay. So it seems to be doing the standard quirky American indie thing of, you know, this person has got issues. Therefore, we're going to do this tick list of slightly strange things that they do. That was one of my problems that I have with the film. Um, and then she wins, she unexpectedly wins $86 million in the lottery. Um, and she wonders what she's going to do with it. So, and then she discovers that there is this um, TV show um, that is failing, that its audience ratings are falling off, it's struggling for money. She basically goes up to the producers of it and says, look, I want to do a game show, uh, a, a TV show, um, sort of present it. And they say, well, what would you like this TV show to be about? And she says, well, I'd like it to be about me, all about me. And she gives it a title, Welcome to Me. And they're a bit dubious at first, and she she throws them a check of fifteen million dollars, and they say, you know, we, we're not making any money. You know, we would take the check off her, and they basically give her, you know, free reign to do a show all about herself. And it's it you know it's it's awful. It's it's self indulgent. It's narcissistic. There are some very very funny, blackly comic bits which contrast what she's do. She's obviously not camera trained. Um, and she, she, you know, like I said, she, she's a character who's, who's quite sort of emotionally disturbed in a lot of ways. And it contrasts that with the people behind the scenes, played by the likes of um, Joan Cusack and James Marsden, who are up there horrified at what they've inflicted on on the world. Um, but wouldn't you know it, the show does actually start to form a bit of a cult. Um, and she does all these. She she has all these weird demands. Like she says that she has to come into the start of the show on a on a swan boat. That's how she enters because she loves swans. And you've just put your head in your hands, so I can see exactly how you'd react to this. So it does it does do that slightly thing, you know, like kooky, quirky, you know, slightly you know emotionally unbalanced, all this sort of stuff. And I think there isn't really enough depth to Kristen Wiig's character in order to convince you that this is a sensitive portrayal of, of mental illness. It's almost like, you know, it's invested in her strangeness without really wanting to explore it any further. It's quite surface level. Um, but the stuff, I mean, the stuff about, you know, she goes on TV and, you know, all of the, the terrible stuff that's fed to us 
you know, through the nature of television. I mean, that's, you know, that that was that was an interesting Blackley comic thing, and I thought that was quite funny. You also got, um, like, Wes Bentley is the, um, is the cam- Wes Bentley from American Beauty is, is the cameraman with whom it, it, she starts having a, a fling. And then you've also got Thomas Mann is, from Me and Earl and the Dying Girl is this grad student um, who, you know, takes a liking to her. And it's all, you know, and she's a very... Um, like I said, she's a very narcissistic character, um, and and also probably the best performance in the film actually is from Linda Cardellini as Alice's best friend, who really you know has has suffered through a lot in this friendship and is continually being put on the sidelines while Alice is being you know constantly putting herself you know front and center you know uh, Linda Cardellini's character has been you know is trying to you know sort of say you know what. I'm your friend, can you look out for me? And it does this swerve into, you know, sort of, it goes it goes from being, wanting to be this biting black comedy, all of a sudden into this sentimental schmaltzy thing, which he learns how to crawl as a person like that. And you think, oh, so it's all over, the, it's all over the map as a film. I think Kristen Wiig's commitment to the character is really, really good. And I think it's another interesting character that she's done. Very messy, very flawed, but with some sharp jokes in it. But the tone is all over the place. And the name of it again? Welcome to me. Excellent. So, for regular listeners of this podcast, uh, they will know that Sean is partial to a soundtrack or two. Um, quite so uh, far, he has seemed to be giving glowing reviews to soundtracks here, there, and everywhere. So, um, In the words of the Beatles. So then... What were you throwing at for? Anyway. You interrupted my flow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So, uh, Sean has been listening to something on hard rotation, I'm sure, for the last couple of weeks. Sean, what have you been listening to? Yeah, I've been listening to the Batman v Superman soundtrack and my ears have been bleeding. Uh, that should tell you where this is going. So, um, collaboration between Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL. Um, and I want to say straight off the bat, I did, I've, actually I've done an article of Flickering Myth about this, about everything that's wrong with the Batman v Superman soundtrack. Oh, is this where you whore yourself? Yes, yeah, where I'm whoring myself. Okay. And a lot of people have been interested in my whoring. I've actually had quite a lot of interesting responses to the article about how I'm wrong. Also, some people have said I'm right. So actually, that's what you want with an article like that. You want to, you want to generate divisive opinion, and indeed this soundtrack has. I've not read uh, it, but I'm sure you're wrong. Okay, thanks for that. So is, we're can... playing devil's advocate for the sake of it. No, um, no, I'm not. You're not Al Pacino. No, I'm not. What do you got? Um, so, where can people find your work? Just before we uh, get on with this, uh, you can soundtrack. find me on the Den of Geek on Flickering Myth. Uh, you can look up the um, Composers Podcast at Black Hole Cinema. Uh, we just recently recorded the Hans Zimmer episode, and we've also done Best of 2015, 2016. And of course, you can find us here, which is Cultural Mirrors. Find us at Cultural Mirrors on Facebook and on iTunes. Exactly. So tell us more about the soundtrack. Yeah, right. So I'm a, bit, I'm a fan of Hans Zimmer when he's on top form. Uh, Hans Zimmer can be really, really innovative and really creative. You think of things like Rain Man, Driving Miss Daisy, The Lion King. Yes, he, his music for The Lion King was important. No, it wasn't. It was. It got an Oscar. It, you, you can't... No, no. You can't look at the this when Mufasa Elton John and Tim Rice when Mufasa and Simba are out looking for, uh, across from Pride Rock and he said this land is our land. You've got the music in the background. That's just one of many examples. Mufasa's death, for goodness' sake. That was Elton John. 
It moved, Tim Melton John did not, not do the music for Move Fast as Death John did the music. He didn't do it. That was the score. Anyway, I knew you were trying to antagonise me <laughs> and you're doing a good job of it. Um, anyway, Hans Zimmer, when he's on top form, can be really, really innovative. I don't think that superhero soundtracks are his best forte. I didn't like what he did with the Batman trilogy. I think that, and I don't like what he's done with Man of Steel or Batman v Superman because they make the cardinal sin of... Film music needs to do more than add volume to a movie. Film music needs to narrate on its own terms what the story is about and it needs to bolster the emotional impact of what you're watching. It needs to add a whole other layer of dialogue to what you're seeing. Classic example, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, what Clint Mansell did with High Rise. Okay, The music in High Rise does a lot of the storytelling on its own terms. I know these are two completely different films, but the principle is the same. What the Batman v Superman soundtrack does is it makes a noisy film even noisier. Yeah, literally the Inception style, the Horn of Doom as it's referred to, which I think is a brilliant description. Um, but you think no, because that makes it sound very, very wrong. What the pot noodle horn of doom? You're making it worse. <laughs> That's my intention. Um, yeah, I, I need to salvage some light from from this review because I'm aware it's been very negative. But I thought, okay, I haven't liked what Hans Zimmer has done in the superhero genre up to now. But he's got Junkie XL on board, who did Mad Max Fury Road. I, I thought the score from Mad Max Fury Road was probably the least distinguished aspect of the movie. Again, simply by adding lots of drums to to a movie that's already militaristic I was like right okay there are probably any number of ways this could have been more creative but there was actually some really good material in Mad Max I thought that when the women characters come into it later on and you get that very strained beautiful emotional material I thought oh, okay that, that's great um, he also did the score for Black Mass which was great um, but I thought right so maybe he'll he'll revitalise all of this he'll revitalise the hands in approach my goodness me it's gone completely the other way it just reaffirms everything that I don't like about modern day film scores and I think that it commits the cardinal sin of it's boring it's boring there are now I will say there are interesting moments in the Batman v Superman soundtrack I know a lot of people have said that the electric guitars for Wonder Woman are some of the best bits that was really disjointing it was it was really naff and really cheesy and I thought (laughs) it just struck of the, the entire film seemed to be on a serious level and then that just came out yeah. of an 80s film. You know what it reminded me of? Um, have you ever seen The Mighty Boosh? Yes. Um, you know with Rudy, with the jazz fusion, it reminded me of that. Uh, anyone who doesn't know The Mighty Boosh, go and look up Rudy, Rudy jazz fusion guitarist. That guitar lick that he does sounds exactly like Batman v Superman. If you haven't seen it, go and watch The Mighty Boosh. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's really strange. Yeah. Um, and I think there are interesting moments in it. I think the opening sequence of the film, you've got that piano-choir combination, which is very nice, and it almost, it's deceptive, because you think, oh, okay, this is actually going to be an emotionally deep and resonant film. But the rest of it, it just piles on that processed noise that you've heard Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL do so many times before. And indeed, I know Zimmer has said that he wasn't interested in doing the Batman material this time around. Junkie XL did that, Zimmer did the Superman stuff. It doesn't matter, it all blends into this just miasma of noise that that you know just made me want to thump my head against a wall but is this the score that the film deserves probably do we get the heroes that we deserve <laughs> well we certainly haven't got the score that we deserve and you think of the the, ri- the rich history of superhero sound not all superhero soundtracks have to be transparently heroic of course they don't because all superhero movies are different i accept that it's not simply a case that i want all superhero scores to you know, be resonant in the old-fashioned. But you compare milestones like John Williams' Superman or Danny Elfman's Batman to this, and you think, it's like we've regressed big time. But 
we've probably regressed in terms of the film itself. And what more can Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL do apart from provide a slightly vapid score for an incredibly vapid movie? So, no, not impressed. And if you are very interested in finding out a little bit more uh, about whether it's even possible to have a great score for a really bad film, I'm sure I read an article on that uh, somewhere as well. Who wrote that then? I don't know, some guy. It was me, by the way. Well done. That, that's, that's for the listeners, that wasn't for you. I'm sure that people got that. Go. <laughs> I don't think they, I just wanted to reinforce that. Anyway, as <laughs> Sean goes to the cinema as often as humanly possible and watches Eggheads on TV, um, <laughs> the TV section is generally left to myself. So um, I'm sure it's escaped almost nobody's attention that The Walking Dead had their season finale this past weekend and uh, it's divided opinion somewhat. Uh, it is basically for, for those that are not as up to date with the show as they kind of need to be. Um, switch off now, watch the finale, and then we can talk. Um, not going to ruin anything, but ultimately, the problem is there's nothing really to ruin. Um, a lot of people are kicking off at the fact that at the final shot of the the final shot of the episode is that you you are seen from a first person perspective. You are looking at this character that they've introduced. They spent the entire episode. They spent almost the entire half season introducing this character. Um, a guy called Negan. And we finally meet him about halfway through this final episode, this extended final episode. And we then have a whole long time of him talking to the characters. The monologues are beautiful. And he's played brilliantly by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. From Watchmen. From Watchmen, indeed. Zack Snyder alum. So he is absolutely wonderful. And he was one of those really weird castings that has happened in, in Hollywood lately. You look at John Bernthal for um, Daredevil in uh, playing the Punisher. The, he, those two castings, just basically the internet went, yeah, all right, fair enough, we, we accept. You mean there was no outrage about it? Well, it was just more like, mm, all right, let's wait and see, sort of thing. It was, you look at the actor, you look at the character, and you go, yeah, okay, fair enough. So um, so we had that with, with Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Negan, and he appears in all of his beautiful awful glory in this final episode and he's he's vicious he's sweary he's the, the beauty of the way that this character has been written is that you can almost see if we if we've been following him for six or seven seasons then we might actually see his perspective and see it on, from his side whereas because we've been following rick and his gang we see it from their side so that's the way that this the end of this season's been set up and the final shot is first person seeing him use his baseball bat called Lucille um, she is wrapped in barbed wire and uh, I'm guessing that name's ironic so Sorry. he is taking this baseball bat and he is uh, smashing somebody somebody's head in and this is seen from first person so blood's trickling down the camera and then it slowly goes black and we just hear some screams and you don't know who it is those read the readers of the comics would know who it was in the comics. It was in issue one hundred. They made this massive splash of killing a main character and introducing Negan. And this was an absolutely shocking event in the comics. I'm not going to ruin the comics for anyone, but um, the fact that we don't know and it's been left on a cliffhanger that seems to have been let. It seems to have outraged everyone. What, what, what's the general feeling that you found online? Well, I, can I just say, like, I, I don't watch The Walking Dead, but yeah, it seems to me like, yeah, this character has been really, really hyped, and yet 
they've built up a lot of anticipation as to who it is who's going to snuff it at the end of this one and then it's almost like they've, they've bottled out of it and they haven't done it and also the whole blood trickling down the camera thing that's a very very cheesy technique isn't it oh it, the way that it's done is very it, it basically throughout the show one of the aesthetics is that when they're stamping walkers or when they're dispatching the dead shall we say um that blood does spray on the camera it's just something that happens throughout the show as an aesthetic so it wasn't it didn't ever really take it as a it didn't look like the bond theme if you know what i mean mm. it didn't look like that it was it it looked quite oh good. you mean the gun barrel the gun barrel yeah, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where the blood comes down yeah um so it didn't quite look like that but um the the main as far as I can see, the main controversy is the fact that people don't like they've been left on a cliffhanger. Well, yeah, I was going to say, isn't that just a very, a very, very sneaky and quite cynical way of, of them saying, right, somebody's died, therefore we could have started off by somebody dying, now we can actually change who it is who's, who's dying because we haven't actually shown who it is, so we can actually toy with with the, with the mythology of the comics and everything like that. They could have done that from any point. The, the mm. argument is that they have... It's the end of a story. Negan coming and killing somebody is that the end of that story the start of the next story is the aftermath on who has been killed and how that results in everything else so the argument that the showrunners are using is that we are we have finished this story and we will pick up the next story in the next season so um as far as i can tell it's already been scripted it's already it's all in stone as to what's going to happen so it won't necessarily change it's just more the fact that they've left people on a cliffhanger which is as far as i'm concerned the beauty of storytelling it's the absolute beauty of, of telling stories across a season it's a season finale not a full series finale you know it's not i'd say personally a cliffhanger is only as good as the story that's leading up to it mm. if you've if you had a good story leading up to it then fine i mean if, if you've had like sort of an hour and a half of humdrum stuff and then it, and then it leaves you hanging i'd be like well, I, i'd feel a bit disappointed personally I can understand that, but I think that the fact that we had the episode that we had, that the one, the episode in itself managed to take Rick, our main character, back to a, a state of absolute fear and to have stripped him back. It, it was slowly done throughout the course of the episode. So to, to get him to where you, you have Negan coming out and saying the things that he's saying, that was so impressive. And then to have him say these things and be as, as charismatic and almost likable, bearing in mind he's the main antagonist, to be almost as likable as he was, and then to do this is, as far as I'm concerned, brilliant storytelling. It was absolutely wonderful. And as far as I'm concerned, the detractors just don't like the fact you don't know something. So when will the series be picking up? When can people see the results of who has been killed? It will be in the fall, be later on this year. Um, so it's not even that long to wait, really. It isn't really, is it? Five, six months? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, it, it very, very good. We're looking forward to it. So... Um, that is the Walking Dead season finale. One of the other TV events that happened uh, this past week was, I'm sure it escaped nobody's attention on the, the zeitgeist either, was WrestleMania 32. Um, uh, where we, where do we really stand on, on wrestling shows? Because they're TV shows, they're entertainment, they're sport. Where, where? So that's the sound of the zeitgeist walking past me. I, I, I've no idea okay. what, what, what this is. Okay, so. well, fine. <laughs> Builds a sports entertainment show. Um, it was a, a full, it was almost a five-hour extravaganza um, that happened on Sunday night, and it was. Uh, it's a show that's been very sort of mm, middlingly received. It was. There were some great spots in it. There was a really great spot uh, with Shane McMahon. However, uh, ultimately, the storytelling towards the end of the main event was not particularly strong enough. 
Um, obviously, the most popular culture relevant thing was the fact that The Rock showed up and he managed to strip his clothes off almost as if they were Velcro and uh, he was in full ring attire within seconds. Is there a better entrance for him than that? What, just to be fully clothed and then strip his clothes yeah, off? Yeah, like, like a Velcro. You, you want to see The Rock strip is what I get from that. Well, who doesn't? Very true, who doesn't? <laughs> So WrestleMania 32 was ultimately a really great show. Um, Not quite worth the the five hours, though, let's be honest. But what is? So, Sean, what is going to be in our cinemas over the next coming weeks? So we have uh, The Huntsman, Winter's War. The sequel to the film that no one wanted? Well, prequel, sequel, sidequel, beforequel. There's something else to a film that no one watched. Cool, yeah. Uh, With an inexplicably good cast, considering um, it looks like fairly generic fantasy fare. So you've got like Chris Hemsworth, Charlize Theron, who was in Snow White and Huntsman, Emily Blunt and Jessica Chastain. um, Yeah, I couldn't really make a head nor tail of the trailer, let alone why all these great actors were in it. Um, But it looks like it's going to cater for that particular market. So therefore, it doesn't so doesn't make sense to be snotty towards it. Wait so and see, could we'll be great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we also have now this one. I'm really looking forward to do the Jungle Book, John Favreau, which is getting brilliant reviews um, for its visual artistry and its storytelling. Apparently, it's not just the visuals that are impressive. Apparently, it gets the spirit of of Disney and of Kipling's story really, really well. In spite of the fact that not one leaf or bit of foliage in it is real, all done with CGI, which is really quite extraordinary. Uh, and obviously that extends to all the animal um, characters as well, voiced by the likes of Idris Elba and Scarlett Johansson and Ben Kingsley. Exactly, we'll wait for that. Yep, really good. Um, obviously, um, there's really interesting ones coming out. We've got Midnight Special. That uh, looks wonderful. Yeah. Um, Michael th- Shannon. Yeah, Michael Shannon, Joel Edgerton, Kirsten Dunst, Adam Driver, Sam Shepard. Directed by... Jeff Nichols? Yeah, who's a terrific director, one of the best in the business. He did um, Mud, which was obviously one of the key films in the reconnaissance, um, and also Take Shelter as well, also with Michael Shannon. Um, yeah, throwback, sort of close encounter style throwback movie about a, a father who goes um, on the run with his son who has some sort of strange powers that manifest and all these various people are looking to seize on the boy for like various sort of purposes. Um, yeah, meant meant to be really, really terrific. And of course, you know, um, we look ahead as well on a bigger scale towards Captain America Civil War, which comes at the end of the month. Yeah, I think we'll probably have a podcast before that's out. Mm. Um, fingers crossed, obviously. Uh, ailment dependent. I mean, how's your leg feeling after this podcast? Um, well, I won't know until I stand up, but it, it was it was giving me jip earlier. Oh, so. no, all the stairs to go down as well. I just say that I, I'm not just moaning about about my leg hurting I was actually doing swimming and I um, I hurt it so or you think I've done something else you yeah think? yeah you've you've had a little spasm all you've done is you've got cramp <laughs> I, I spend my time sitting down in cinemas how am I meant to know what it's cramp. exercise feels like I showed you how to stretch it out but you've not stretched it out yeah I didn't out, want so that your demonstration own, either it's your just, dopey uh, fault so. yeah I, I, I don't do exercise I do films well yeah there we go which now, is weird looking at me Good luck climbing the stairs now. <laughs> and that. So, what about your ailments? Oh, I'm. Yeah, let's let's not go into this. You've got the plague, haven't you? I mean, uh, yeah. I, my commitment being in here opposite you when you've got the plague. Well, yeah, but you should put an X on you or something. Uh, there's one on my door of my house just to <laughs> ensure people don't come in. Just put it on your forehead. Well, yeah. There we go. Um, 
So that will just about do us for the Culture Mirrors podcast this week. If you want to catch us on Facebook, then do so at Culture Mirrors. Obviously, we have the Twitter page as well, at Culture Mirrors. Um, if you're listening to this podcast via iTunes, then great, excellent, hit subscribe. If you're listening to it via SoundCloud, then brilliant also. But we are available on iTunes. Don't know if you just heard that. Um, and if you ever want to drop us an email and ask a question or anything like that, then feel free. It's Andy at CultureMirrors.com. Until next time, I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And we're off to go and watch Eggheads. See you later.